The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Morning. Let's pray briefly before we get going. Lord, I pray that the meditations of our hearts and the words of my mouth would be pleasing in your sight. Lord, I ask for your help now to preach faithfully, truthfully, and by your spirit with power and effect. And Lord, be present, present now to bless us. Help us to see your son, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So my wife Mary and I have been global partners at Bethlehem for over 12 years. It's been our joy and privilege for many of these years to be South-affiliated global partners. And for a long time, that seemed to consist of uh, an occasional open house at the 501 building, if any of you remember that. I'm really glad we don't have a 501 building anymore. They weren't the, the most well-attended open houses, but it's been a joy these number of months to be back here and in this beautiful building, meeting many of you face-to-face. And I'm really excited, excited about what God's doing here on this campus, excited about the energy and interest to all the more get to know us, global partners, and get behind us. So I'm thankful. Well, a significant season of our ministry overseas began right here in Lakeville, not too many miles away from this place, about nine years ago. In the fall of 2012, our family met with another Bethlehem-supported global partner family who had to leave their home in the Middle East because the war in Syria was spinning out of control. About that that same year, we were not able to return to our home and ministry in South Asia, largely because of fallout from the Osama bin Laden raid. And so we came together that night, our two, two families, and we talked and prayed about coming together as a team with a ministry focus on Syrian refugees spoke about forming a team that would have a goal of meeting both the physical and emotional needs of refugees in their time of distress, all the while trying to make disciples and plant churches among them. Well, a short time after that meeting, both of our families were living in the same Middle Eastern neighborhood and reaching out to Syrian refugees in partnership with local Arab churches. And in the years that followed, we had no idea it would be this way, Six million Syrians left their homes and fled for refuge in neighboring countries. And as thousands, millions of Syrians were on the move, God was moving in a unique and powerful way in the hearts of his people to prepare them and mobilize them for ministry all throughout the Middle East and Europe. I like to tell people that our years of ministry in the Middle East among Syrian refugees was part of a big, broad kingdom work of God. There were countless believers, local churches, as well as foreign gospel laborers and organizations, all reaching out, loving, serving, and sharing the gospel with Syrians. It was truly an amazing experience to be part of such a big, broad work of God through his people. Well, unsurprisingly, given there were so many different Christians from different backgrounds and churches, There were a lot of different thoughts on what ministry or type of ministry was most important or most vital. Now, at least among evangelicals, we all shared the same 
heart and desire that Syrians would not only have needs met, but would meet Christ, come to faith in him, come into the kingdom. But this shared goal raised some questions. What was the best way to work and labor, pray towards that end? So there were some who put a high emphasis on mercy ministry. If we meet needs well and do holistic care, surely many will be drawn to the God we serve. Others say we need to keep the focus on bold, abundant, persistent gospel witness and word. And there are others said we need to see the biblical call to exercise faith and pray for God to work miracles. Refugees meet the miracle-working Savior, surely surely they'll be drawn to him. They'll believe in him. So along with our teammates, we wrestled through some of these things. What should we be giving our time and energy to? What needs 60%, 40%, 20%? We're always wrestling with that. Well, I believe the text before us today in Acts 9 can help us answer this question. So I'm breaking the text into three parts, looking at two saints, two miracles, and one powerful Savior. So let's dive in. Two saints. Well, our text today brings us back to the Apostle Peter after a focus on the conversion of Saul and his early ministry in Damascus and Jerusalem. It says in verse 32 that Peter went here and there among them all. If you recall, we saw some weeks back that after the stoning of Stephen, a great persecution broke out amongst, against the church. And the result was that believers were scattered from Jerusalem throughout all of Judea and Samaria. And it says in Acts chapter 8, verse 1, that all the believers were scattered except the apostles. Now, as you've heard before, this scattering was all part of God's plan, right? Recall Jesus' words to the apostles in Acts 1.8. He said, you will be my witnesses in all of Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. So as the believers are scattered, the plan and purpose of God is being fulfilled. And the apostles, still based in Jerusalem, start making visits out to these scattered groupings of believers, these churches. So in today's text, we read about what happened when when the apostle Peter was on one of these ministry trips. We see him here traveling down from the hills of Judea and Jerusalem to the coast of the Mediterranean. Travels first to the city called Lydda, and then on to Joppa, which Palestinians call Jaffa, and is part of Tel Aviv today. Now, make these geographic points not because they're simply interesting facts, but because geography for Luke is important. It's important because it's important to God and his global purposes. There's significance, spiritual significance, in every village, every town, every region where we're seeing the gospel proclaimed and received throughout the book of Acts. And the significance of these two locations before us today is that we're continuing to see the gospel advance and bear fruit away from the Jewish heartlands of Jerusalem and Judea. Jerusalem, the city of the great king, rejected their Lord, crucified him outside the city gates. And not long after, they rejected his follower, 
Stephen, had him stoned to death. And the believers are scattered, and the gospel's going with them more and more away from these heartlands, the religious center of Jerusalem. And Lydda and Joppa are on the road to Caesarea, which is a Roman stronghold. And we're going to see right here in the coming weeks, the gospel's going to start running in a big way to the Gentiles. So in Lydda, here we read in verse 33 that Peter met a man by the name of Aeneas. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. The text gives us little information about Aeneas other than that that he was a paralytic. Aeneas is a a Roman name, so it's quite possible that this man was from a Jewish family that was more accommodating to Greek and Roman culture around them. In this way, he was probably very different from the strict, religiously observant Jews up in Jerusalem. We'll talk about the miracle more in a little bit. But while Peter's with Aeneas and Lydda, the church in Joppa hears that Peter's nearby and calls for him. Because a woman by the name of Tabitha in Aramaic, or Dorcas in Greek, has died. Now Luke gives us far more details about Dorcas. And what we see is she's a remarkable woman of God. And so I want to dwell for a little longer period of time on Dorcas. So what does the text tell us about Dorcas? First, look at verse 36. It says she was a disciple. This is, in fact, the only place in Scripture where the term disciple is used in reference, direct reference to a woman. Dorcas is a female disciple of Jesus. And Luke, who's the author of both Luke and Acts, often highlights the significant role that women played, both during Jesus' early life and ministry, and in the growth and expansion of the church. Dorcas is only one among many women who are key players in this early Christian movement. And I think here we do well to remember that discipleship, Church life, missions, it's not merely the work of men or in the wheelhouse of men. It's men and women together. All believers, male and female, young and old, are to be active, engaged disciples for Jesus in both word and deed. And Luke wants to highlight this. He wants us to see it's not just the apostles, but even seemingly ordinary people like Dorcas through whom the gospel's advancing, the church is growing. Second, in this text, we read in verse 36 that she was full of good works. Isn't that a beautiful statement? If you died and someone had to sum up your life, not much better could be said that that person was full of good works. Dorcas was a 1 Timothy 2.10 type of woman. She adorned herself not with gold, pearls, or costly attire, but rather with good works. And her abundance of good works made plain to all that she was a genuine disciple of Jesus. She wasn't just doing what was expected of her as a woman. She was doing what her Lord had commanded her to do. In Acts 10.38, Peter makes this amazing summary statement about Jesus' life. And ministry. He says this. He says, Jesus went about doing good. 
In his gospel account, Luke writes that Jesus was a man mighty in word and in deed. I love how Pastor Dave is continually pointing us back to Acts 1-1 and how the book of Acts is all about how Jesus continues to do and to teach through his people after his death, resurrection, and ascension. So Jesus, he's not only present through Peter and the apostles preaching and teaching. He's not only present performing miracles. He's present and working through women like Dorcas who are doing good to all. Well, thirdly, here in this text, we see that Dorcas was not only full of good works, but acts of charity. Some translations, this is translated as alms. These acts of charity can be considered donations to the poor. And see this in verse 39. As Peter goes into the upper room where Dorcas' body is laid, there's a whole group of widows weeping, mourning her loss, showing to Peter all the tunics and garments that this woman had made for them. So Dorcas, she wasn't just a First Timothy 2.10 type of woman, full of good work. She was a James 127 type of disciple type of disciple she's one whose religion was pure and undefiled before god the father as she showed loving kindness to widows in their distress in this way dorcas powerfully reflected our lord jesus his mercy his love his compassion for the poor so i imagine that most of us when we think of the book of acts and the highlights What comes to mind is Peter preaching to thousands and thousands coming to faith. Or Paul and his exotic missionary journeys, encounters with the Gentiles, or all of his sufferings for Christ's sake. Peter and Paul, they were extraordinary apostles who had extraordinary ministries by the power of God. But let's not overlook disciples like Dorcas. Dorcas, through what might be considered an ordinary ministry had an extraordinary impact on her community. And we see this with all the women gathered there mourning the loss of this woman. So Luke is showing us that Christ is demonstrating his power not only through the miraculous and mighty ministry of the apostles, but building his church through these ordinary believers as they're scattered about in what might be considered, and of course we know it's not by the Spirit, ordinary ministries. So a few years ago, during the height of the Syrian refugee crisis where we were living, I had a conversation with an Arab evangelical pastor. He told me that for years, all of the ministry training in his church was focused on evangelism. Ministries of mercy, of charity, were considered the work of of Catholic churches, but not the evangelicals. Well, the church he was pastoring at the time, when the Syrian refugee crisis started picking up, well, the neighborhood surrounding it became host to literally thousands of Syrian refugees. And during those early days, a group from the church was meeting to pray and to read the book of Acts. At the same time, refugees were coming to the door. When a refugee came into the country, they'd often go to the mosque, into the church to see if there's anyone or anything that could help them. So here these refugees were right in their community, knocking on their door. 
They're reading the book of Acts, and God was moving, opening their hearts, expanding their hearts, expanding their horizons for ministry to these refugees. So the church in the years that followed started a whole variety of ministries. They started a school for refugees, started a dental clinic for the poor. And when Iraqi Christians had to flee ISIS, the Iraqi Christians staffed those dental clinics. Many of them were professionals. This church partnered with foreign organizations and distributed mattresses and blankets to the refugees as they came with very little, with almost nothing. And they even designed and came up with a vegetable distribution project to give vet, to help supplement the diets of these refugee families. And all the while, as this is happening, a group from the church is meeting, praying, and then making visits to the Syrians. They would sit with the families, drink coffee, hear their stories, and pray. And I've never seen a Muslim ever reject the refugees, in that case, reject. They were ready to be prayed for. They welcomed it. And in these visits, they'd share the gospel. And as people were open and interested, they would return and do a series of evangelistic Bible studies. So through an ordinary church and ordinary believers, God was doing an extraordinary work. There was an extraordinary impact on this community, on the refugees. So I ask you, how does this make you feel? Put yourself there, right here in this community. What do you think about a church devoted to service among refugees or migrants? What is your reaction if we're devoted to good works among the poor? Does it make you uncomfortable? I imagine that for some of you, it does. So I want to address some, what I could see would be some objections. So first, maybe you'd say, we're Protestants. Those who love the truth that we are justified by faith, not by works. Well, absolutely. We love at this church the truth that we're justified by grace alone, through faith alone, apart from works. But we're also a church that doesn't just love banner slogans, from the Protestant Reformation, we love every word, every phrase, every sentence of Scripture. So, we love Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. But then we go on, and we read the next verse, Ephesians two ten, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. God not only justifies us freely by his grace, by grace alone, through faith alone, he also sovereignly prepares good works for us to walk in. And some of these good works, as we know, reading the Bible, are acts of love, of mercy to our neighbor, to those in need, to the foreigner, to the refugee. Well, another objection could come. Isn't a ministry focus on good works? Doesn't that distract from evangelism? My answer here is simply to point us back to the earthly ministry of Jesus, as well as the Apostle Paul. As I made mention of earlier, Jesus' earthly ministry was summarized by the Apostle Peter as one that was devoted to preaching and doing good to all. And we know especially among the poor, The Apostle Paul in Romans 15 says that 
He fulfilled the ministry of the gospel all throughout the eastern Mediterranean by word and deed, as well as by signs and wonders, all of those things working together. How about another objection? Isn't a focus on good works, isn't that a slippery slope to the social gospel? And here, my answer is to remind you, as one, as American, but coming from the outside and a lot going on here, we are first and foremost citizens of the kingdom of heaven, and only secondarily citizens of Minnesota and the United States. There's a lot going on here, and it's hard to watch in the States right now, but there's room for all sorts of discussions and disagreements, debates about what is best, politically speaking, for the poor, the homeless, for migrants. But as it relates to our calling as disciples of Jesus, the commands of God are clear. They're non-negotiable. Love your neighbor as yourself, no matter who those neighbors may be. The church where we lived in the Middle East, they didn't choose those neighbors, but they were there. They came. And we're also commanded to preach the gospel to all, regardless of background, where they're coming from. So there's real danger in these tumultuous times in which we find ourselves that we lose sight of very basic, and as we see in Acts, important biblical commands and call to be concerned for the poor, the needy around us. And I believe here Galatians 2.10 is a helpful and key verse. Perhaps you remember it. Peter, uh, Paul and Barnabas are looking for the support of the church in Jerusalem for their Gentile mission. And Peter and the other apostles are ready to bless Paul provided one thing. You remember what that is? Provided that they remember the poor. So Paul, the greatest missionary in the history of the church, one who is uncompromising in his missionary goals, says it was something he was eager to do, that even as he preached the gospel, even as he was planting churches, he was eager to remember the poor. Are you zealous to preach the gospel? I hope so. Are you eager at the same time to remember the poor? For the Apostle Paul, there was no contradiction in these two pursuits. So moving on, two miracles. Well, the first miracle in this text is, of course, related to Aeneas. Peter meets Aeneas, a paralytic, and like the miracle in Acts 3, Peter looks at this man and simply says, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. Verse 34. Aeneas rises and is healed. And the second miracle is, of course, Dorcas being raised from the dead. Now, I know many of you, I hope many of you, are reading through the Bible regularly. And so what I want to do is I want to walk through some of the details of this miracle account of Dorcas being raised from the dead. And I want to see if it, if it rings a bell, if it sounds familiar with any other miraculous stories of the dead being raised. Look at verses 39 through 41. Dorcas was among widows doesn't say that she's a widow. She was among widows. She dies and her body is laid in an upper room. A group of mourners gathers around the dead body. Peter puts all the mourners outside and seeks privacy. 
Peter then kneels down to pray. And then he turns to the body and says, Tabitha, arise. And having awakened, Peter takes Dorcas by the hand and presents her alive to those who are gathered. Any other stories come to your mind? Well, scholars see connections between these, this story of Dorcas being raised from the dead and at least three other biblical stories. And I'll say what they are, maybe write them down if you're interested, read them, look them up later. The stories are Jesus and the raising of Jairus' daughter in Luke 8, Elijah and the raising of the widow's son in 1 Kings 17, and Elisha and the raising of the Shunammite son in 2 Kings 4. All of these stories are about the dead being raised to life. All of them except one, the story of Jesus, takes place in an upper room. The text mentions that. In all of them, the one performing the miracle seeks privacy. And in all of them, after the dead person's raised up, they're presented alive to their loved ones. So what? What's the point of these connections? I think Luke has a reason why he wants to see he wants us to see this connection. I see significance in at least three ways. First, as I mentioned earlier, following the martyrdom of Stephen in Acts 8, we're seeing the ministry of the apostles and the early church increasingly taking place outside of the Jewish heartlands, away from Jerusalem, away from Judea, on the road to the Gentiles. And in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4, Jesus rebukes those in his own hometown, and he compares his ministry to that of Elijah and Elisha, who were often serving, ministering on the margins of Israel. Jesus notes that Elijah, although there were many widows in Israel in his day, he was sent to Sidon up to Lebanon, to a widow there and perform miracles. God is always on the move. He's pouring out his saving blessings. However, where there's hardness of heart, God moves on. This is what we're seeing in this passage. Christ, through his apostle Peter, is powerfully at work on the margins of the religious center of Jerusalem. We also shouldn't be surprised. There's a warning here. God will continue to move forward. His mission will move forward. But where there's hardness of heart, where there's unbelief, he will pass on. Even if we're confident, we will always have God's blessing. He moves on when there's hardness of heart. The second point of significance, the raising of Dorcas from the dead through the prayers of Peter testifies to Peter's unique role as an apostle. Peter's on the level of an Old Testament prophet like Elijah and Elisha. They, by the Spirit of Christ, hundreds of years before Christ's incarnation, raised the dead to life. And now Peter, after the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, by the same Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, is raising the dead to life. The role and ministry of Peter as an apostle is extraordinary, much like the ministries of Elijah and Elisha. And third, point of significance, and with this I move on to that third point, one powerful Savior. When we put these stories together, something amazing stands out. And it shows us the uniqueness, the extraordinariness of Jesus, bar none. Before Peter spoke, 
to Dorcas, saying, Arise, he knelt down and prayed. Acts 9, 40. Before Elijah saw the widow's son revived and presented him alive to his mother, he cried out to the Lord in prayer. 1 Kings 17, 21. And before the Shunammite widow's son sneezed seven times and woke up from the sleep of death, Elisha prayed to the Lord. Jesus, however, on entering the room, took the child by the hand and said, Child, arise. The power to heal, the power to raise the dead to life, the power to forgive sins is found only in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Callings and roles of Elijah, Elisha, Peter as prophets and apostles, they're extraordinary, but they're all dependent upon Jesus to intervene and save. And that's why Peter, when he sees Aeneas, he says what? He says, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. I don't know about you, but I find the fact that Elijah, Elisha, and Peter all had to bend their knees and pray to the Lord before performing a miracle massively encouraging. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. He's sitting at the right hand of the Father now. And so, that should encourage us, move us out to preach in his name, to do good in his name, and even to pray for the miraculous to happen. Well, the result of these miraculous workings through the faith and prayer of Peter and the others there in Lydon Joppa is that many turn to the Lord. Look at verse 35. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, Aeneas, and they turned to the Lord. And then down in verse 42, talking about Dorcas being raised to life. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. Acts 9:42. Even before Peter arrived in Lydda and Joppa, and these two miracles happened, God was already powerfully at work through his saints there. The miracles performed by Peter were icing on the cake of what God was doing through ordinary believers in that place. And so there's a combination here, a combination of the more ordinary ministry and the extraordinary ministry of the apostles coming together, and the result is the harvest of souls, many turning to the Lord. May it be in our day. So, in conclusion, three points of, of application. First, if you're among us or listening and you're not a believer, I sure hope that you've experienced the kindness, the mercy of God's people. I know that's not always the case. We're grieved and saddened by that, but that is the desire, the heart of this church, is to show kindness, to show mercy. And I know in this church there are many. There's a team after every service ready to pray for you, even to pray for miracles to happen. And so come, be prayed for. And as God meets you through the kindness of his people and through prayer, it's all meant to turn your heart fully to the Lord. He is the one who is full of kindness. He is the one who has the power to save. And second... 
for those of us who are believers, I hope, I know it's happening for me, that week after week of going through the book of Acts, our eyes are being opened and our hearts are being expanded, much like that church in the Middle East. Are we looking at those around us in this community where God's calling us out in ministry? God is sovereign. He's free. As Bill prayed, the rocks will cry out if we're silent. But it's God's plan and purpose that through us, through his church, that the gospel goes forth through manifold, varied ministries of love. And lastly, and with this, I return to my question up there in the introduction. And the question's a trick question. It's a dumb question, actually, I think. The answer for all of us is to devote ourselves to good works. Devote yourself to those good works that God has uniquely designed and gifted you for. You don't have to worry. Dave's been talking about it through the sermons. We don't see a strategic grand plan of the apostles and how to see the gospel go from Judea, Jerusalem, or Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria to the ends of the earth. The saints are faithful to Christ. They're praying, and they're committed in love to people, and God's moving in a big way. So if you have a heart of mercy, devote yourself to showing mercy to believer and unbeliever alike. If you love to host, you host believers and unbelievers alike. Whatever your gifting is, whatever your passion is, be like Dorcas. Devote yourself to good works. Be full of them. And I'm confident that as the whole body of Christ itself devotes itself to word and deed ministries together, both within the church, to build one another up in love, and outside, that we will see God's power displayed in the miraculous, in the mundane, in the extraordinary, and the ordinary. And Lord willing, through it all, we'll see many turn to the Lord. Let me pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the book of Acts. And our hearts do burn as we see all that Jesus was doing and teaching in the days of the apostles and through women like Dorcas. And Father, we want to be full, full of the Spirit of Christ. We want to be fully engaged and committed to those good works that you have called us to and uniquely designed us for. So help us, Lord, and help us with all the voices that are screaming these days and the culture around us. Help us to be listening to your word, to your voice, committed to those things that you're calling us to, to preach the word, to love, to serve in Jesus' name. We ask for your help and we pray that many, many more would turn to the Lord, even through us, through our ministry in this church, we pray in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, Five five four one five. Bethlehem Baptist Church. 
spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.